Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Mary Pat. Good evening. My name is Mary Pat, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Mary Pat. Congratulations to the newcomers. Welcome, welcome, and to our candle taker, <laughs> Matina. Congratulations. Um, so, what it was like, what it's like now? No, I skipped this. What happened and what it's like now? <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything about what happened. <laughs> um, I think I have been a compulsive overeater since I was a child. That's something I was really aware of. Um, I, com- I came from a large Irish family, and it was very easy to sneak food and to overeat and to not tell the truth about what was going on because nobody could keep track of food in our house. So <laughs> you, could, you could get away with it. So uh, I started with uh, being dishonest about food and the amount that I was eating as a child, and uh, that went on all my life. I was on diets. I was always about 20 pounds overweight or a little bit more than that, and I would go on a diet and lose 20 or 25 pounds and back it all off, and then as soon as uh, I'd lost the weight, I'd stop the diet and I'd put the weight back on. So I know that's the story of a lot of us. But I did I did some unusual things with food. Um, well, we all, I guess, have done unusual things with food, but I definitely ate frozen food, and I took food out of the garbage. And I think the worst thing I ever did, and I tell people that and I haven't had anybody who's been able to top this one. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with those decorations at Easter. There's eggs that you can look inside a window, and there's a little scene going on inside the, the window. Well, we had those as children on our table as decorations, and my girlfriend and I picked the shellac off the eggs and ate them, ate that sugar. So I just thought, <laughs> that's just got to be the definition of insanity. I don't care how young you are. We know that you don't eat shellac. So um, anyway, that said... My story really began with OA when I was um, 35 years old. I was in New York, and I was doing a job that was about an 80-hour-a-week job. It was really tough, and it was fast and hard, and but it was fun. And um, I was very much in love with a man that I later on found out was not in love with me. And I got uh, very sick. I was drinking pots of coffee and smoking packs of cigarettes, and I got down to 127 pounds and found myself in the hospital and locked up in a psych ward with a diagnosis of of bipolar disorder. So that was all brand new to me, and as soon as they put me on the meds and I got out, I put on about 20 pounds in uh, about a month. And I started um, gaining weight amongst these episodes. I had four or five of them, I think, in in total. And um, I was putting on weight like mad. So I put on about 80, 80 to 100 pounds from uh, the meds that I was on. And being a compulsive overeater, you know, the doctor would say, this, this medication might put weight on you, and I think, might. You know, <laughs> I can put weight on without these meds, so I'm sure it will. So that was my reaction to it. But um, in between, I'd have periods of time that were very calm. Uh, because at 35, the way this happened was, uh, the man that I was in love with was... Uh, put into an alcohol clinic right around the same time I was put into the psych ward. And I ended up um, picking up Alcoholics Anonymous, the big book, and reading it from cover to cover because I was afraid that I was an enabler and that I had something to do 
I had some culpability in his being an alcoholic. So that was the first thing that I did. It never occurred to me, I guess I didn't know at that time that there was a program OA and that I belonged in a program. I just went to a few Al-Anon meetings is what I did, and then when that relationship broke off completely, I stopped going. The thing that brought me in was actually an Eskimo to these meetings. Um, I had a friend who was uh, 17 years sober and was uh, in her first year of Overeaters Anonymous, and she would come over to my house quite frequently. She was visiting because she was uh, she had lost her apartment and was in the process of trying to buy a house, so she had a little place that she was staying that just had a little tiny... Uh, a little tiny hot plate and no stove. So I fixed meals for her all the time. And she would come over and I'd fix these beautiful abstinent meals for her. And I would eat the same thing that she ate, but I was not doing that for myself. And she would say to me very gently, you know, if you ever want to go to a meeting, um, I, st- I would be happy to go with you. And I just kind of thought, well, I don't know. Well, during this time, my sister got cancer and she uh, subsequently died of cancer. She was a hospice nurse and a fantastic nurse. And Boy, I saw some wild things at her house. While she was sick, all the nurses would arrive to visit her, and they would bring things that were loaded with sugar, loaded with butter, loaded with salt. And I kept thinking, gee, these are nurses, and they're having difficulty with nutrition. And this is certainly not the kind of thing that she should be eating in this situation with such a weakened body. And I kept trying to prepare her really lovely meals. And, you know, there was a while there where we really thought she was going to make it. And she and I made a promise to one another that we would try Overeaters Anonymous if she managed to survive, which, uh, unfortunately, she didn't. And so I went through, I went into a depression after she died because I was so close to her. We were only, we were only um, 15 months apart. And so I just really had never known a world without her. And... Um, I would tell this friend of mine that I call my Eskimo, I would tell her, she'd, she'd call and say, how are you doing? And I said, well, I'm having a hard time getting out of bed. It seems to me that all God wants for me right now is to be a professional reader. I seem to be just reading. <laughs> and then occasionally, you know, and, and passing out, going back to sleep. Occasionally I could make myself get up and do the wash and I could do dishes so my apartment was staying nice and clean, but I, I wasn't uh, doing well myself and I was putting on more weight. So finally I said, you know what, I think I need to go to a meeting. So I walked into the rooms in 2001, and I was struck immediately abstinent from sugar. That was a thing I heard in the rooms with several people in their shares that day, and I thought, well, I shouldn't be eating sugar either. I've never been able to eat sugar like a lady, and I've certainly never been able to eat it in any, exactly, in any kind of a controlled way. So I thought um, I should just give sugar up. And I found a sponsor right away. He was... Um, I think I was 50 at the time, and he was 26 years old, but he had such a wonderful sense of humility that I thought, gee, that's something that I always admire in people, and it's something that I find esteemable, so I'll ask him to be my sponsor, which was great. He was a terrific sponsor and a dear guy, but when we got to my fourth step, I thought, I can't do this to a 26-year-old boy. I can't make him listen to a 50-year-old's inventory. That's just wrong. So um, I told him that I was going to find another sponsor, and I did. But very shortly thereafter, I was um, getting ready for Christmas, and my best idea for Christmas with nine months of abstinence was to make uh, candy for friends for a Christmas gift. (laughs) And I did swell until about the fourth day of doing this, you know, and really, can you believe that? I know, just crazy. So, and then I found myself just licking my fingers, and I called my uh, sponsor and said, I've been 
I've been making this candy, and they said, yes, I know, and how's that going? And I said, well, I've been licking my fingers, and they said, you know what, because, and I said, I think I should start over, and they said, well, because you know that this is the one substance that you don't eat, and you chose to work on it for four days, I feel like you should start over, too, so I did. So I've had two times where I got nine months, and then I did something like that and had to start over again. But I've, it's never lasted more than a few days. I've always known that I needed to be in these rooms, so I came right back into them again. And I, um, I worked on getting an abstinence again. And I would always start again because a friend of mine told me, you can't, if, if you have an, a lapse of some sorts, if you, or a relapse of some sorts, it's really hard to go back to the abstinence that you had that was clean because it was a disciplined, good abstinence and it had a lot of steps to it. I was finding myself having a hard time getting back on that. So I decided that the best thing I could do was to start again with no sugar, absolutely no sugar, so that's what I did. Um, in the program, I have had many experiences that have been difficult. I've had uh, several members of my family pass away. I've had um, uh, difficulty myself. Like I say, I've had a hospitalization and uh, actually just at Christmas. Well, I wasn't hospitalized at Christmas, but I had another episode. And I had prided myself on um, the fact that about 14 years ago, I wrote a one-person show about my uh, journey through bipolar disorder. And I had managed to go 14 years without any episodes and found my, I mean, yeah, 14 years without any episodes. And I just had one in December and found once again that I think without this program, without being able to walk in these rooms, my food would have been a mess, and I think I definitely would have had a large weight gain. I had picked up smoking, which I was able to put down again, and now I'm almost nine months non, not, not smoking again, which was just a benefit of OA. I wouldn't recommend that you treat that in OA, but I was lucky enough that OA... Um, kind of saved my life, and I didn't end up having to um, to go through any other machinations to quit smoking because I had great friends, and they just said, you know, before you pick up, call. And I found that it was impossible. It was impossible to call somebody and then have one. So it worked out that it went away, which was just fantastic, without any suffering around it at all. So that was such a bonus. And that's the third time that I'd quit in programs. So that's fantastic that I was able to get an abstinence there. Um, as far as my spiritual life went, I, because I came from a, an Irish Catholic family, I was, I was taught through no fault really of my parents or even the, the church. It depends on who you've got for parish priests and it depends on who you've got that's preaching the Bible to you, but I was taught a vengeful God. And, um, that was really hard for me to, to try to move through this program thinking that there was a God out there that might punish me. So I, I had to go after that, and I started writing down what my higher power might be. And I finally came upon that it's a being that's nothing but a force of love, that no matter what you do, you're loved and you're forgiven, and you're always given another chance. And that really worked for me and made me feel safe so that I was able to really uh, feel safe in program and feel that I was supported. So in the time that I've been in program, I've lost 45 pounds. I still have some weight to lose, and I'm still working on that with my sponsor, trying to figure out what, what is the best losing abstinence for me. I think I've gotten attached to a certain amount of food that I could have when I was 50, and years have passed, and I think I can't eat that much anymore now. So I think it's probably I may have to go to portion control or something, which I'm more than willing to do.
Um, but that was that was a big thing for me to be able to find freedom around a higher power and also to treat this as a spiritual program meant a great deal to me. Just recently I had a um, I was at a meeting and uh, one of the girls in the meeting said that she's going back to her knees again. She's praying on her knees over uh, her abstinence. And I thought, why not? It's been a long time since I've prayed on my knees. I have a tendency to pray lying down in bed or um, in my car. I stopped... I stopped turning on the radio in my car about three years ago, and I now drive in silence because I feel it's a meditative way for me to be able to do my day, and I feel that it's really, if you can meditate when you're driving in Los Angeles, you can meditate anywhere. So, and that was really helpful to me. And I have found, because I've been able to do that, that I feel like, I can hear answered prayer. I can hear thoughts occur to me and, and assistance comes to me because I'm alone in the car. And also I found that I'm so much more patient with people um, driving. I'm just, I'm so much better. I, I, I now don't, I don't think it's been years since I've called anybody a name. Not necessarily that they haven't occurred in my head, but it hasn't come out of my mouth. And I figure, okay, if you can stop it on that level, maybe eventually I can stop it on a thought level and it, the thought won't be there. Um, but I have great compassion for people, too. I just understand that you never have any idea what's going on with somebody, and I try to keep that in my mind. I try to think of people in the vehicles as, okay, everybody driving around, is, if they were my family, this is my aunt, and this is my uncle, and this is my brother, and this is my sister, and this is my dad who shouldn't have driven as long as he did. And um, it just makes me be more patient because I think, <laughs> don't honk at dad and don't scare dad. So, <laughs> so I think just be patient. So that has really been helpful to me. And um, let me see what else. I lost my train of thought there. Oh, um, what I do in a day. I found writing has been enormously helpful to me in this program. I started out... My first 12 steps I did um, consulting the big book and um, uh, maybe writing a couple of lines about things. And then I got this workbook, the, the OA workbook, which I have found to be enormously helpful. And I went through the 12 steps again. I'm on step nine right now for the second time. And um, I am finding that uh, the workbook has been really helpful to kind of... Uh, provoke other questions that I might not have come up with on my own or ask more detailed questions than I would. And I use, I, I recommend and I use with my sponsees the OA 12 and 12, the AA 12 and 12, and the big book. And I am now just beginning to get ready to do a big book study, um, which I have never done, and I want to go uh, line by line, and I know that there are places that do that, and I thought it would be nice if I had an opportunity to do that and would like to do it. So... I'm hoping to do that. Uh, see. I'm thinking of other aspects. Oh, and I, I, I have added exercise. When they added the new um, tool, I thought, well, it's good that I have got exercise going in my plan already. So I've been doing that, and that's been good. And um, I've been doing it in a reasonable way, like three times a week. And that's been something that I have really, um, in my life, I've gone off and on it. When, when I put it actually on my plan, then I feel, it, it, it seems to be that 
almost miraculously I can get up and go. Although I will have days that all of a sudden I'm back in the same I'm back in the same old place again and just having difficulty getting out of bed and getting myself to the gym. So that I'm hoping this getting on my knees and praying now will be the thing that will really inspire that and make that work, help me get out there and get going again. Um, I have I have now five sponsees, and uh, for a long time I didn't take on sponsees either. I felt like you had to complete the steps in order to do that, and I really don't feel that way now. Even with my sponsees, I feel that if you can get to uh, the fourth or fifth step and or the sixth step, that you could start sponsoring somebody on step one, which I think is great. And, and um, a couple of my sponsees have taken it on and decided to go ahead and do that, and others have decided that they wanted to complete the 12 steps before they began sponsoring. I began sponsoring myself before I had completed the 12 steps, and um, I felt like it was good for me because it really motivated me to complete my steps because I had to keep moving in front of whoever I was sponsoring, and, and I thought, I better get on this. And I know that there's a lot of reticence, or, or I've seen it in the rooms around step four, and that was really helpful to me because I was dragging my heels in step four, and I got so much better at it when I realized that I was going to have to sponsor somebody on a step four fairly soon that I started to ask me, <laughs> it's like the fire at your heels, that I thought um, it really made me start getting honest and, and telling things that I had been afraid to tell or that I was just uh, avoiding telling or avoiding writing, and that was great. Um, gee, I'm kind of stuck for things to say today. I feel like I've got a great program today, though, and... and um, it's working well for me, and I am happy with the, with the fact that I go to four meetings a week. That's one of my bottom lines. I pray in the morning, and I pray at night. I volunteer. Uh, I'm in service at three of the meetings that I go to, which I, is really great because that keeps me going back. And I'm happy for that, and I'm happy that they recommend in the program that you do do that. Um, I also find that... Um, I haven't, since I walked in these rooms, done any of the crazy things that I used to do with food. Even in, even when I've broken my abstinence, I have never gone back to those really crazy things. I've never eaten until I was sick. I um, don't eat in the quantities that I did then. If I have anything questionable about my food, it would be that it's a slightly larger portion than I, I normally eat or that maybe I had a couple more snacks in a day. I, one thing I could say was I was diagnosed with diabetes about three years ago, and there are three other members of my family that have been diagnosed with it, and they're having a terrible time with it and may have to move to insulin shortly because they just can't get off the sugar and they can't get off the white flour, and they're just having a terrible time. So I was very lucky because when I went to the doctor, I walked in, and she said, you know, um, this is not going to last long that you can come in every six months. You're going to have to take insulin, and it's going to progress, and it does at your age. That's just the way it goes. And um, she now is, has found that she's had to kind of eat her words because I've been doing this for three years and I'm doing exactly the same med that she put me on originally. My numbers are always great when I go in there. And I remember when I first came into her, she kept saying, um, you know, you've got diabetes now and you can't eat sugar. And I said, well, I don't eat sugar. And she said, no, but, I mean, you have diabetes now and you can't eat sugar. And I said again, I, I, I don't eat sugar. And she said it a third time, and I said, 
obviously you have a lot of patients who come in here and lie to you. So you're having a lot of trouble with believing that I don't. And I said, I actually don't. It's not like that's something I'm going to do, quit sugar, and all of a sudden you're going to see a big change. But I did find that I went to a nutritionist, and that was when I really got interested in portions because I went into the nutritionist, and they were... um, um, she was asking what I ate, and I said, well, for breakfast, generally, I have blueberries and yogurt. And she said, show me how many blueberries you have. And I said, well, you know, it's one of those little tiny containers. I eat the whole container. And she said, oh, do you? <laughs> I said, yes. And she said, well, that's three portions. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, about 15 blueberries is a portion. And I thought, oh, my God, this is going to make me go out and eat the world. Now I have to count blueberries. But I have found that she's, she's right. Uh, it, when I thought I was having three fruits a day, I was probably having nine because a whole banana is, is two fruits. Uh, and a, it's a very small apple is considered one fruit. So, yeah, I know. <laughs> That's how I felt the day she told me that. So, um, anyway, I have found now that I can do that. And I could never, never have taken the advice of this nutritionist and followed it if I had not been in program. That would have been just too tough. And it's been actually fairly easy for me. And I think about it all the time now. So, um, And when I talk to my family about it, they say, but you've got to be crazy. We are not going to be counting 15 blueberries. And I said, well, you don't have to. I'm just, you asked me what I did. I told you what I did. So I said, that's it. I'm not expecting that you're going to follow me or, or think that what I'm doing is right. But I... Um, uh, anyway, so it's nice to be able to have uh, to have appointments with her and to go in and to have it be clean. And that was really a tough thing for me for a long time, being really honest about my food. I think that I came from this Irish kind of wild family, and they're, they weren't the best at telling the truth and certainly not telling it accurately. The family was full of exaggeration, and if you could get a good laugh out of it, go ahead and say, I ate 19 of these instead of I ate one, you know. So when I was growing up, I didn't have any real capacity to understand what the truth was. And I had a dear friend in this program say, oh, honey, when we come into this program, none of us know what the truth is. So I was really grateful for that because it was daunting to me. And I remember sitting in a meeting one time crying about, gee, I don't know if I can really tell the absolute truth about things. And that has really changed for me, too, in the program. I've been able to be far more honest with myself and with other people and certainly with the writing, the writing really was, a, honesty was absolutely changed by my ability to sit down and write and tell exactly what happened, exactly what did I eat, exactly what was the situation that I was in. And that made a big difference for me in knowing, um, in just being able to express myself and tell the truth was just something that I didn't know I'd get to. And I was nervous because... In the format, I think you read it today, that it said there are those of us who, who maybe cannot be helped because we can't tell the truth and we don't know the truth, or we're disturbed by mental illness. And I thought, oh, my God, I've got all of that. I've got <laughs> mental illness and I can't tell the truth. So I thought, will this program ever work for me? And I have to say, I've been so grateful because I feel it really has. And I feel one of the biggest miracles and pluses of this program was when I read Step 2, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, that meant something so different to me because I thought I'd been called insane and I'd been legally locked up for it. So it's not that I'm just insane around food. I've been actually called that. And I have found that I have had so little disturbance or ripple. Now, I can't say that this will happen for anybody else, but for me, it has made it a, a huge difference being in these rooms. I have had so little disturbance from this disease. It plays so little part in my life. And I think that a huge part of that was I lived on 
the phrase of arrogant doormat. I was either the top of the world or I was nothing. Uh, things were either fabulous or they were horrible. And I remember crying for about a year in these rooms because my life was in the middle ground. There was so little drama in it. There wasn't a lot of disaster, but there certainly wasn't a lot of drama. And it was so... I just thought, oh, I don't know if I'm going to like living life this way. If it's just always in the middle ground and things are okay and I can sort of handle what comes my way and um, I understand when when people are rude on the phone or I understand when somebody cuts me off in traffic, I, I kind of get it. I, uh, and I think that that would never have happened without these rooms. I would never have found that kind of serenity. And I think that's really what I found here is I've really gotten a huge dose of serenity and relaxation in my life, and it isn't full of drama anymore, and I'm grateful for that. And I'm uh, really, I'm still mystified by it, because I know a lot of people who do not have that, and I almost wish to, to say to them, I wish you could get yourself in a 12-step program, because I think it would really help you. I think that you're attached to drama in your life, and that's one of the reasons why it persists, is that you've got a, an appetite for it. And that was what I realized when I came in was, I think I'm a person just of big appetites, appetites for for too much of, a, of good things, just too much of it. And that was hard for me to come in and realize that um, I was going to have to get in a land of moderation so when it started to happen, it was disturbing to me, and I was grateful that I thought this is now a place that I find so peaceful and so great that my life is in a completely different place because of it. I have, um, I think I'm easier to work with, and I'm certainly easier to be around, and I find that um, things that used to upset me, I became the manager of the building that I live in, and as the manager, I've had to... Um, evict people and I've had to I had one person who was a chronic hoarder that I had to deal with because the city was saying that I was going to have to evict him and I didn't I just so didn't want to do that because I knew he didn't have the money to live anywhere else and I thought if we evict him he's got nowhere to go we literally are going to be putting this guy on the street and I think if it wasn't for program I wouldn't have been able to navigate the conversations I had to navigate with him because that's a tough thing to have to go in and be honestly frank with somebody about the fact that they're endangering the lives of other people in the building, that they're a fire hazard and a, the, the weight of the books that he had collected was a hazard to the, the roof of the apartment below them. And already we'd had to take one of the walls out of the building and replace it because he had filled his sinks with books and there was a leak going on and it leaked into the, the wall of the building and it knocked. We came by and you could feel on the wall that you could just press it with your hand. It was spongy. So the building had to be redone, and, and still, and God bless the owners of this building that they allowed me to keep negotiating with this man and allowing him to live there. And finally, um, he did. He did manage to get like a ton of this stuff. It, it was, it was literally a ton, no exaggeration, one ton, because he passed away about uh, three years ago. And when we cleaned up his apartment, we removed uh, ten tons of detritus from his apartment. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sad, and I just thought, I had such compassion for him because I thought, here's another person of appetites, you know. He just had to own all this stuff and filled his house with all this stuff, like creating a little world that was safe for himself. And um, uh, instead of being angry with him or upset with him, I found that I was able to be very compassionate with him in understanding and be able to work this out. So 
that was a blessing that I don't think ever would have been in my life before. And I think it would have been, I think that would have been the Waterloo that made me quit the job and just say, I'm not going to do this. I can't do it. It's too hard. And I have been up against that, been in that position a couple of times. I've taken on another new job of being a financial advisor on a board of directors, which is hilarious to me. I can't believe that I'm the financial advisor, but I figure I'm going to learn as I go along, and I'm talking to people, and they're helping me. But that's something I absolutely would have refused years ago. But because of this program, I feel like I can say yes to it and feel like I'm safe. So um, that's, to me, a miracle and another thing that I'm grateful to the program for. I also came in um, in debt, and I started a women's money group, not realizing that there was Debtors Anonymous. And we used the principles of this program and all of those women are out of debt. We all, all of our finances are solvent now, and we're all doing well, which I think is just great. And several of them, I found out later on, belong to the program too, because they came in with, uh, you know, ideas of their own. And I said, you know, you can't be in this money group unless you bring us something every week. You need to come in with something that you you uh, show us that we could use, and that was terrific. And I don't think I would have been able to do that without the program either. So I'm grateful to the program for that too. So. I think that I have kind of run out of things to say. So in the last 10 minutes, um, if they want to ask questions, that's fine with me. Thank you. Wow. And then making amends? Can you repeat the question? Yes. Uh, he was wondering if I could address um, making a list of people that I'd harmed and then um, continue, continuing that and making amends. Yes, when I first started... Um, First of all, I should say, I come from Minnesota, and in Minnesota, we are constantly apologizing. I mean, people say, I'm sorry if you hit them, or you walk on my foot, I'll say, oh, I'm sorry. And so I have, I've apologized a lot in my life for little things, so it was big things that I was looking at. And I find, I found it difficult to make a list, but I found that the, how it works in AA was really helpful that it gives some examples. And the four columns. That's how I started out with the four columns. And um, I decided to do a timeline, which was a thing that a friend of mine who was a psychologist had recommended uh, when she heard that I was trying to do this task. So she said, why don't you start from the time that you were born to now and make a line and put above it anybody that you've harmed and below it anybody who's harmed you so that you've got all these things things so that you can see where your resentments are and you can see where your, uh, where your amends are. And um, that was really helpful to me. So I made a list. I have to say it wasn't a terribly long list because I am willing to make apologies and I'm willing to think that I'm wrong, that I had done a lot of the work along the way um, when I first, even before I got in program, that was a practice in my life. But I had a couple of tough ones and one that was really complicated. I had a friend that when I was working and living in New York, I was working in a restaurant, and he was the manager of the restaurant. And out of nowhere, really for no reason at all, I got fired one night. And he gave me $300 cash and said, this is your severance pay. <laughs> I never heard of a waitress getting severance pay. So it literally I thought, well, that's really kind of stolen money. But I took it anyway because I needed it. And so when I was making amends, I thought, I really did take that money, and it really was not mine. And so when I talked to my sponsor, she said that I should try to find this person and return the money, which I did and could not find the person. I was in New York, couldn't find this man who owned this restaurant, couldn't trace him down anywhere. So I went back and we sat down again, and she said, well, then 
you should pay it forward in some way. So we agreed on on uh, that I could pay it forward for anybody that I met that was in great need. And so that's what I did for a couple of years. I, I just paid that money forward until the $300 was gone. So that was one. And, um, well, anyway, there were others, but that was one anyway. So that's how I handled that one. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Okay. All right, thanks. Yes. Well, I had a lot of chatter in my head when I have one of these episodes. I have chatter in my head, and I'm... Uh, uh, I don't actually know all the time exactly what I'm doing, so I would write down what I was going to eat for the day so that I, and then I could cross it off to make sure that I'd had that meal and I didn't forget I'd had it or think that I'd missed it or, and, um, I called lots of friends. Chief friends were helpful to me. You know, they helped, they helped me by taking me grocery shopping and doing things like that until I could drive again. Because sometimes there's, uh, a, like a nervous edge to one of these episodes and I can't drive for a few days. Um, I came to meetings constantly. Um, well, that was, the, that's this Christmas. Because I, I had stopped having episodes just, just a, about, Six months before I came into program, I didn't know that, but I never had one after I came into program until last year. But um, I went to meetings like mad when this happened this last time. I, I really, um, uh, and I was able to catch it without having to go in the hospital, but I still was, I was doing um, a court case downtown doing jury duty on a really tough case, and I'd been on it for 15 days. And I think actually that might have been the water, and searching for the truth. And that truth is so important to me now that I think that became... It's funny, I feel emotion coming up about it. No, it was a devastating case to work on, and the decisions we made were going to affect so many people that um, I was calling people like mad, and then my phone broke, and I wasn't able to use a phone down there, so I became isolated. As a matter of fact, I ran into a program person when I was down there doing this court case, which was really helpful, going to lunch one day, and that was a God shot. Couldn't have been nicer to see somebody from, because I was having trouble getting to my regular meetings. But so that's what I did, a lot of prayer. I tried to meditate to the best of my abilities, um, but I really reached out a lot, and, and people were there for me. So that's pretty much what I did. Yes, my relationship with my higher power is, is really great today because it's so real. My relationship with the higher power prior to coming into the program was to um, get on my knees and pray to something outside of myself. Now I am talking to something that I feel I contain within myself, that I'm a part of, that I think everybody's a part of. I think it's in everybody. And I ask it for assistance constantly because it's like my constant companion. It, well, it is my constant companion. It's not even that it's like it. It is. And so I, whenever I have any question or anything that um, I'm concerned about, even a decision of what I'm going to eat, that's where I go first. And if I have further, you know, if I feel I don't get an answer, then I, I will make a phone call or talk to a fellow in program and get help from them. I stopped that about a, a year into uh, starting with OA, but I picked it back up again now because of this last episode. I thought that I should take that to somebody, just for reassurance for my family too. As it, as it so happens, I live alone. So I want my friends to feel like I'm safe so I do see somebody outside of the program. I do. Um, because I have trouble just sitting in a chair and sitting still, I lay down on my bed and I lay flat on my back and I follow my breathing until I get into a place of where there's not chatter in my head. And then I kind of just watch my thoughts. I just let them track. And um, usually I say prayers going into it. I say 
the serenity prayer and the third step prayer. And then I just start following my breath in and out until my body relaxes and I can start to uh, get into a meditative state. And sometimes it's really successful and sometimes that's all I'm doing is following my breathing because it won't, it, it won't release and just let me go. And in my car, I just, that's, that's where I, you know, just without the radio on or anything else, I'm just listening to what I'm thinking. But sometimes that gets very meditative too. And it's, you know, it, it can be really a lovely meditation. I think the first thing I'd say is that they should get a sponsor right away and that to get some sort of a food plan is a great place to start just because it's um, a template for the other things that they're going to have to do to create sanity in their life. If they can start to get sanity in their food, you start to get some sanity in your thoughts. Um, you start to get confidence that you can achieve a level of healing. You know, I really thought I was healed because it was so many years. It's highly unusual to have four episodes and be hospitalized for them and then to go 10 or 11 years, 12 years without an episode. That's highly unusual. And I really think that that has a great deal to do with the fact that, well, first of all, I think, interesting, Nikki, I think it's because I was telling the truth. When I first was diagnosed, everybody told me, never tell anybody that you've been locked up for mental illness. Don't tell people you've ever had it. Don't tell people about it. Say that you had ulcers. So all of a sudden, I know it, as if ulcers, you know, my hair's standing on end and I can barely walk. Yeah, this is ulcers. I thought, <laughs> not hardly. So, but I did think, I think that was enormous. There's a lot of people out there working to remove shame from that diagnosis right now. But this is a place where somebody can come and tell the truth about what's going on with them. And they can do it every day. That doesn't exist or didn't exist for most people. And I think that even my doctors were going, do you think that this OA thing is significant? I said, oh, I think it's highly significant. I think it makes a huge difference in how I'm recovering. So I think that that is... um, really the thing that that worked. Thank you.